Father, I pray that we would know in this day the incredible nature of the salvation that you have provided for your people through the Savior who did what He did. And therefore our hope, our boast is not in ourselves, not in our works, not in our abilities, but in Him. Help us to trust Him. Help us to know Him. Help us to love Him. Help us to serve Him. And God, today as we look into Your Word, if there's anybody that doesn't know Him, Holy Spirit, would You speak life and grant repentance and faith to the praise of Your glory. Help us now, Holy Spirit, to understand and then to apply Your Word in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you've been with us, um, well, we actually kind of started this section of Scripture back in August. And I took a month off if, if you haven't been with us, so don't think we've spent that long in this, which we're not above that. We're not past that. We could do that if we wanted to. Um, but, but no, we're, uh, this section of Scripture, these uh, going 7 to 19, there's so much there and the thought pattern is so unified, it's hard to separate it out, but there was no way we could cover it all in one message or two messages. So this is the third message on this passage. And today we'll be focusing on verses 15 to 19. So let's look at verse 15 out of what we'll read there. As it is said, Today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. So let me see if I can kind of try to tie all this together so that we get the whole flow here. So this verse here is a repeat of the beginning of the quote that we saw in the passage on verses 7 to 11. So I do want to look back at that real quick and read 7 to 11, even though you just saw it. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion, which is what we just read in verse 15. On the day of testing in the wilderness where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years, therefore I was provoked, God says, with that generation. And God said, they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, God says, they shall not enter my rest. Now that is some... Heavy stuff, right? And we're not going to revisit all that we've already said about that in the message from the end of August. And um, Lord willing, Luke is going to deep dive into Psalm 95 where that quote came from next week. Um, but to re-reset the stage, we'll say that the writer of Hebrews was showing us from the Israelites' exodus from Egypt how they, the Israelites, were overwhelmingly negative in their attitudes and actions and that they provoked God who, in His anger, swore that they would not enter into the rest of the promised land. And we looked at the reference to Meribah, which is where they were grumbling when they had no water there for the first time. But there's another episode where God um, makes this promise that none of them will enter the promised land. Uh, what we're, we're going to look at here is when the 12 spies were being sent out to get a report of the promised land. And this happened... This blows my mind. 
Okay, so the Israelites left Egypt, everything, Red Sea, all that kind of stuff. And in a couple of weeks, they were at the Jordan. They were at the Promised Land. Okay, now how long do we know that they ended up wandering? It was over 40 years, right? So they were there. They were, they were at the door. They were, they were at the river. And so they sent out these 12 spies to go out and spy the land. Tell us what the land is like. One, one spy from each tribe. And among them were Joshua and Caleb. So they send these spies out. They've been promised this promised land. And they're right there. Now watch this. Numbers 13, 25 to 33. At the end of 40 days, they returned from spying out the land. So they were in the land 40 days. And they came to Moses and Aaron and to all the congregation of the people of Israel in the wilderness of Paran at Kadesh. They brought back word to them and to all the congregation and showed them the fruit of the land. Now they say they brought a bunch of grapes that they had to have a big stick that two people carried that those grapes were hanging on. Fruitful, good land, okay? And they told him, we came to the land to which you sent us. It flows with milk and honey. And this is its fruit. And I just, I just imagine a big giant grape. I probably wasn't that big. But the grape the size of a watermelon, you know. Check this out. This, this is the fruit. However, the people who dwell in the land are strong. And the cities are fortified and very large. And besides, we saw the descendants of Anak there. Those are giants. The Amalekites dwell in the land of the Negev. The Hittites, the Jebusites, and the Amorites dwell in the hill country. And the Canaanites dwell by the sea and along the Jordan. But, but Caleb quieted the people before Moses and said, Hey, let us go up at once and occupy it, for we are well able to overcome it. Then the men who had gone up with him said, We are not able to go up against the people, for they are stronger than we are. So they brought to the people of Israel a bad report of the land that they had spied out, saying, The land through which we have gone to spy it out is a land that devours its inhabitants. And all the people that we saw in it are of great height. Now watch this. And there we saw the Nephilim, the sons of Anak, who came from the Nephilim, and we seemed to ourselves like grasshoppers. And so we seemed to them too, I would throw in there. Hmm. So now, watch what the people do in response to what the spy said, and then watch what God does in response to the people's response. Numbers 14, 1-4. Then all the congregation raised a loud cry, and the people wept that night. Now they're at the gate of the promised land. And all the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The whole congregation said to them, Would that we had died in the land of Egypt, or would that we had died in this wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us into this land? To fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become a prey. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to one another, Let us choose a leader and go back to Egypt. God. Then the Lord said, I have pardoned what happens here in between here, what we just read and right here. Moses goes in and he pleads for the people to God. Don't kill them. Then the Lord said, I've pardoned according to your word. But truly, as I live, God says, 
And as all the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord, those, those two things are sure, God lives and the, and the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord, as sure as those are true, none of the men who have seen my glory and my signs that I did in Egypt and in the wilderness and yet have put me to the test these ten times and have not obeyed my voice, none of them shall see the land that I swore to give to their fathers and none of those who despised me shall see it. But my servant Caleb, and you could throw Joshua in there too because he's going to go too. He was one of the twelve. Because he has a different spirit and has followed me fully, I will bring into the land into which he went and his descendants shall possess it. Now, since the Amalekites and the Canaanites dwell in the valleys, turn tomorrow and set out for the wilderness by the way to the Red Sea. Now, do you understand what's happened here? It'd be like if somebody bought you a house, brought you to the front door, gave you the key, and you said, I don't like this house. The living room's not big enough. There's only one oven in the kitchen. All right, then, you'll never enter this house. Hmm. So literally, now get this, by God's doing, literally of all the people who left Egypt in the adult generation, only two of those people from that generation got to go into the promised land, Joshua and Caleb. The two spies who gave the good report of the land that they had spied out along with ten other guys who then said it would be too hard to possess and that there were giants in the land and that the Israelites were like grasshoppers in their own sight. And so that trip that should have taken a couple of weeks ends up taking over 40 years. 40 years. Four decades until that generation literally dies off. God says, every one of them are going to die in this wilderness. None of them are going to enter into the promised land. Why? Because they didn't believe. So having worked through some of Psalm 95, some of 1 Corinthians 10, and Hebrews 3, 7-11 in the message from the end of August, and seeing this passage in Numbers, we have a good context for today. And so then the writer had said in Hebrews 3, 12 to 14, which was our main focus last week, that his readers were to... Oh, we just need to read it. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. So, it's the writer urging his readers to not be like their Jewish forefathers who had hard hearts and who rebelled and put God to the test and provoked Him and went astray in their hearts and were not allowed to enter into God's rest. Take care, the writer said in verse 12, lest there be in any of them, in any of us, an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. And then the call to exhort one another today, as long as it's called today, to avoid this hardening of heart. And then the reminder that we have come to share in Christ 
as believers in Him, if indeed we hold our original confidence in Jesus until the end. And we said last week that that if is not a chance to blow it, but a reminder, more of a sense, S-I-N-C-E, something is true rather than if something would happen that could make it untrue. And that's so important to the language of Hebrews. It's so important that we understand what the writer is saying. If I said to you all, I hate the New York Yankees, some of you are laughing. You're like, why would you say that? You know, I'm just frustrated with them, right? They drive me crazy. Baseball's just there to break your heart, by the way. That's the only reason it's there. I don't hate the Yankees, but there are times when I hate the Yankees. You got to know the vernacular of the person speaking, you got to know the heart of the person writing. And the heart of the writer of Hebrews is not straighten up or you're going to go to hell to believers. It's understand what has been done for you so that literally if you are in Christ, listen, it is impossible for you to fall away. It is impossible for you to go to hell. That's the language of the writer of Hebrews. So when you see something that makes you go, oh my goodness, that sounds like it's, I, I could fall away. I promise you that's not what he's saying. And it's important that we keep that in mind. Those ifs are very much like senses, S-I-N-C-E. Since it is true, for we have come to share in Christ since indeed we will hold our original confidence firm to the end. One of the greatest signs of being truly born again is perseverance. And that's the point of this whole book. Literally the point of the whole book. So you've got to keep that in mind anytime you see a statement like that. It's not a trick. It's not a, um, a word play. It's know this. Again, we saw the past, the present, and the future in that one verse. We have come. We hold our confidence. And we will to the end. So I, I, can't, I can't belabor that enough. Okay. So exhort one another and remind each other since that is true. So now the writer of Hebrews circles back and revisits his original thought by going back to the original quote, at least a part of it, when he says in verse 15, As it is said, Today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. So what he's going to do from here is recap all that he has said, and he's going to do that through a series of five questions over verses 18 and 19. And then he's going to give the final summary of these provocateurs, which was the favorite word that I wrote down in my message this week, provocateurs. He's going to give a final summary of them in verse 19. So five questions in two verses, and then a summary statement in verse 19. That's kind of the structure for what we're going to look at. So we won't spend any more time on this requote, but rather we'll look at these questions and then the summary that comes in verses 16 to 19. So verse 16 gives us our first two questions. Look at the two question marks. Bling! For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? So really what you've got, you've got a question that gets answered with a question. Sounds like a lawyer, kind of. Who was it that stole the donuts? Was it not the bald man in the blue polo shirt and the Crocs? I rest my case. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? It's really a rhetorical question in nature, right? Rhetorical means it doesn't really deserve an answer. It doesn't need an answer because you know the answer. 
He's already told them who He's talking about. But He's repeating it, I think, for emphasis and clarity. And then He answers His question that doesn't really need answered with a question. Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? And of course the answer to the second question is yes. Yes, it was them, those, them. And I'm struck by the way that both questions work together to drive home the point from the psalm quote. Today, this day, every day, if you hear His voice. And primarily where do we hear His voice? Through the Scriptures, which is what the writer is saying as he quotes the psalmist. Today, every day, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion for... All those led out of Egypt by Moses, by Moses for goodness sake, all those were people who heard but yet they rebelled. He's really pushing all the buttons to motivate them to operate in a different way than those who beheld all that God did in Moses' time, those who were led by Moses and never reached their goal because they rebelled after they heard. So don't do that the writer says, don't harden your hearts like those quote-unquote people of God, the ones who heard God's Word, saw God's miracles, were led by God's man, and still rebelled. And again, reaching back into last week's message, it's not a threat of be good or you won't go to heaven. It's an exhortation to check their hearts and know that one greater than Moses is leading them and they are to trust in Jesus, not angels, not Moses, not the law, not even themselves, in order to know what has been done for them so they can know what God wants to do through them. And you have to have that order correct. It's not figuring out what God wants you to do and then trying to operate so that maybe God will do something for you. You've got to know what God has done for you so that you can know what God wants to do through you. This is a completely different mode of operating from those who wandered and died in the wilderness. But he's not done making his point yet. Verse 17 gives us the next two of our five questions. And with whom was he provoked for forty years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? So same layout, same pattern here. Rhetorical-ish question answered by another question. And with whom was He, God, provoked for 40 years? And the answer is the same group of people who were the answering question to the previous rhetorical question. It's just fun to say. He's just going over this a few times and that helps us to see the importance of what He's talking about. Look at these people who were part of the Exodus. Look at them. Let them be a lesson for you. God bless my sister. She had some of the cruddiest boyfriends when she was in school that I've ever seen in my life, okay? And if they see this, sorry, not sorry, you were a jerk, okay? I learned how to not treat women by watching them. Don't do that. That's awful. That's mean. That guy's a jerk. I don't want to be like him. So I learned what not to do by watching what they did. And that's what the writer of Hebrews is saying here. Don't do that. Learn what not to do. The wisest people learn from other people's mistakes. Oh, young people, hear that. Amen. Amen. Learn from other people's mistakes and don't make them. 
Read the book of Ecclesiastes. He says, I tried it all. None of it satisfied me. And guess what? It's not going to satisfy you either. They wandered in the wilderness. They saw God's wonders and they rebelled. Don't do that. Look at these people who were part of the Exodus and let them be a lesson for you. From the very first time they got thirsty in the desert (laughs) up to the time that they heard they were going to have to trust God to conquer the promised land and then for 40 more years, these Israelites, delivered by God's mighty outstretched hand, literally led by a pillar of fire and a pillar of cloud, which was God's presence with them, did what? They grumbled and complained. They moped and they provoked God through every bit of it. And what was the outcome of all that for them? How did it work out for them? A whole generation of corpses buried in the desert as this throng of people wandered and wandered and wandered as the just penalty for their rebellion was paid by death, literally. God pronounced a death sentence on them. God was provoked with them for 40 years and God killed them off at times one by one and at times in a swift stroke that would take thousands out at a time. Why? Verse 18 starts to answer that question with, as has been the norm this morning, a question. And to whom did He swear that they would not enter His rest, but to those who were disobedient. Now this question actually doesn't get an answer. It's kind of an answer to the previous questions, kind of. And to whom did He swear that they would not enter His rest? Well, we already know who that was. It was the generation of adults who left Egypt and grumbled all the way to the Promised Land and then grumbled for 40 more years as they were denied entrance to the Promised Land. But the writer of Hebrews is not looking to answer that question by identifying the people specifically. Rather, he answers the question by talking about what they did, but to those who were disobedient. It was the people who disobeyed that God swore would not enter His rest. And don't miss all the rest stuff here because that's going to be a big theme in the passages coming up after this one. So we won't spend much time there. That's coming. That's going to be expanded on. But here, we're going to focus on the word disobedient because the writer of Hebrews says that they're not being sworn... They're being sworn out of God's rest. I had an extra word in there. What did it need? The writer of Hebrews says that they're being sworn out of God's rest was because they were disobedient. Now, I want to define that word disobedient. Strong's defines disobedient. The the Greek word is apatheo, A-P-E-I-T-H-E-O in our transliteration. Apatheo, that's disobedient. Translated as believe not, disobedient, obey not, and unbelieving. Not to allow oneself to be persuaded. To refuse or withhold belief to refuse belief and obedience, not to comply with. They would not enter His rest, those who were disobedient. Now, first of all, we see in our word, apatheo, sounds like a word we say, right? Apathy, apathetic. 
Apathetic means I don't care. I'm not affected by something. It doesn't affect me at all. And then the definition goes into the thought pattern of not allowing oneself to be persuaded. No. Mm -mm. Don't believe it, not going to. Or to refuse belief and obedience. Those things go hand in hand, right? Well, it turns out that the whole deal is summed up in just that way. Verse 19 makes it plain. So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. And here we go. This is the summation and the crux of the matter. The point of all this bringing up the Israelites and their grumbling and their provoking God and their disobedience really revolves around one thing. So we see that they were unable to enter because of laundry list of reasons. They were mean. They were grumbling because Moses was mad at them. No, it all comes down to these people not believing God. Not believing God's Word. That definition for disobedience told us that not obeying is rooted in not believing. And remember, last week in verse 12, we saw this warning. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. The hardened hearts, the rebellion, the provoking God, the sinning, the death, no rest, disobedient. Why? Because of unbelief. Plain and simple. This all is rooted and grounded in their unbelief. I think of a story uh, Rich Mullins told. He had a friend who he was witnessing to just time and time and time again. And the guy would ask questions. Well, what about this? And what about this? And Rich said, there was a day when I just felt like I had an answer for every objection that he had. Every scientific issue he had with the Bible, every doubt. He said, I'm just shooting them down. I just had answers for everything. He said, and then his friend looked at him and said, I don't want to believe in Jesus. And Rich had nothing for him, he said. How do you tell somebody, well, you should want to? Well, I don't. These people didn't believe. Now, time out. What had they seen? Plagues and deliverance and Red Sea and manna and quail. and, and just I mean, if you could draw up a blueprint of how to make people believe... You can't get anything better than what we see in the Exodus and the wilderness wanderings. You can't do it. They saw the mountain on fire. They heard the voice of God to the point that it scared them to death. I'm not coming. That's too scary. That's God talking. And yet they didn't believe. Hmm. I don't want to believe in Jesus. Not believing is the very core, the very root of disobedience, which leads to death. And these Israelites in the desert weren't condemned for their actions, ultimately, but rather they were condemned for their unbelief. Now that Greek word for disbelief or um, unbelief, there it is, unbelief, that word 
is the Greek word, and I lost my place. There it is. Apistia. So pistis is faith in the Greek language. When you put an A at the beginning of a word, it makes an antonym. Apistia. And the Bible Sense Lexicon defines that word unbelief as the trait of not trusting in and relying on someone or something, especially used of not trusting in or relying on the God of Israel and Jesus as His Messiah. Look, we could fill a Sears catalog with all that the Israelites did wrong, but all those things find their root in their unbelief. Their faith was not in God. Their faith was in themselves. Their faith was in their circumstances. They were grasshoppers in their own sight. And Bob said it this morning, we walk by what? Faith and not by sight. And this lack of faith determined their wandering path for 40 years and their certain death. And I know we're several chapters away from this here, but Hebrews 11, what's it famous for? It's the hall of faith. So this writer is building a case for faith and trust and belief in Jesus. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen, for by it the people of old received their commendation. And then he goes through a laundry list of all these people who did things by faith. And then finally he says, I don't have time to tell you about everything. But the point is this, all the way from chapter 3 here up through chapter 11, he's saying a lack of faith, a lack of belief leads to our disobedience, leads to our death, But faith, trust in, belief in God leads to something far greater. The whole book, this whole book of Hebrews is one long call to put our faith in Jesus who is greater than angels, who is greater than Moses. We'll see in chapter 4 he's greater than Joshua, none of whom are able to save anyone. Put your faith in Jesus. Only Jesus in His atoning, saving work. Only Jesus is worthy of our trust and faith. And that's the point here. That's what he's saying. So put your faith in Him. These people, the Israelites, in and of themselves, could not have dispossessed the Canaanites in the days of the Exodus. And that's where they stopped. They didn't go into Ephesians 2, but God. But God could have. And he told them he was going to, and they didn't believe him. And the writer of Hebrews is belaboring a point to make sure, don't, please don't, please don't miss this. The writer of Hebrews is belaboring a point to make sure his readers don't misplace their faith in their performance, or in their feelings, or in their heroes, or in any other thing or person, because... If they put their faith in Jesus, they have all they need to be saved, live saved, and persevere in that salvation until God accomplishes all that He has set out to do. And that is so important. Like we've said so many times already in the study of this book, the writer is not trying to spook his readers and make them think that they're in danger of dying in the desert like the Israelites did. 
Instead, he's pointing them again and again to rest in their faith, the faith that they have in the person and finished work of Jesus Christ. So pay much closer attention to what you have heard about Jesus, lest you drift away from it. Don't neglect the great salvation that Jesus has secured for you. He who sanctifies and those sanctified all have one source. He's not ashamed to call us brothers. He is the merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God who has made propitiation for the sins of His people. He is able to help those being tempted having been tempted Himself. That's what He said so far in the book of Hebrews. And then three one, He says this, Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession. And while Moses was faithful in God's house as a servant, Jesus is the builder of the house. And it's you that He's using to raise up a dwelling place for Himself. And Moses' faithfulness was met with unbelief from most of those who were served by Him. But, but, but all those that share in the ministry and work of Christ hold their original confidence in Him firm to the end. So don't harden your hearts like the rebels in the desert. They were what they were because of their unbelief. Be who you are because of your belief in Jesus. And in so doing, listen, you are guaranteed to enter into the rest that He has provided and will provide when all is said and done. And like I said, this concept of rest will be expanded upon in the coming chapter. But for now, know that His rest is complete. The rest of Jesus is final and it is wonderful. Put your faith in that. Put your faith in Jesus who is the apostle and high priest of our confession and hold fast your confidence in Him until you see Him face to face and everything's made right and you enter into that rest and rejoice in the rest that this provides for you now. We're not just going to rest one day. That's true. We are going to rest one day. But I can find my rest in Him now. Rock of ages, cleft for me. Let me hide myself in Thee. Herb Hodges would say, put down your deadly doings and trust in the finished work of Christ. That's what the writer of Hebrews is saying. So, that's the end of our passage. So we'll turn our attention to application, which is about half of this message actually. And we'll be looking at application through three B's. Better, baked, B-A-K-E-D, and believe. There's always one that I'm like, that one. Baked is the one this time. Better baked believe. You better baked believe, baby. So the first application point is better. Now, this is not in this passage, but I can't help but see it. And, and it's, it's, a, it's a, a giant theme of the book of Hebrews that's going to be developed upon so much more fully and greatly later. But let me tell you what's happening here. Let me tell you where the writer is headed with what he's saying here. He's saying, look back at what happened in the Old Covenant. 
Look back at all the situations and circumstances there. Look at how it was brought about. Look about how it was fulfilled. But don't stop there. Look ahead at the new covenant and the greater superiority of the new covenant to the old covenant. The old covenant was never meant to be standalone and this is all I got for you. And oh, I don't guess it worked out because God's people didn't make it. The writer is going to tell us through the rest of the book of Hebrews, all of that was to set up what you are a part of now. The whole point of the old covenant was to show the lack of ability that we have in ourselves to keep God's law and to save ourselves. And God did that on purpose so that He could say, but I can save you and I will save you if you'll put your faith in me, which is what the new covenant is built around. There is a great effort that's going to be put in to show the superiority of the new covenant which is the work of Christ and the Christ of the work in all of this. Ultimately, again, we've said this whole book is about the writer showing the greatness of Jesus and the great, great turnness of the new covenant because Jesus fulfilled it. This is the new covenant in my blood. And here today, we see specifically, as we have in, in past uh, passages, Jesus literally contrasted with Moses. Moses, the great leader of the Exodus, now listen, was a failure. He didn't even make it into the promised land. And when you compare him to Jesus, he was really a failure. Now he was faithful in God's house as a servant. I'm not dogging Moses. But when you look at the insufficiency of Moses in the Old Covenant and the sufficiency of Christ in the New Covenant, no, I don't want to follow Moses. Listen to me. All but two of those that left Egypt as adults made it to the Promised Land. And that could have been a million people. All but two died in the wilderness. So Moses is batting like point oh 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 one percent. Jesus is batting a thousand. Listen to me. All that start the journey with Jesus reach the promised land. Every single one of them. We saw last week of all that the Father sends me, I will lose none. Give me that covenant. So then what's the application? Oh my goodness. Rejoice in the betterness of this covenant that has been extended to us by the work of Christ. Don't drop a single anchor. We're almost home. Those whom He... He from eternity past into eternity future, foreknew, predestined, chose, loved, served, glorified. It's all been done. Rejoice in that and rest in that. Again, that going forward, that's going to be so important to know what this rest is all about. So the application is, thank God for this covenant that has been extended to us by the work of Christ.
2 Corinthians 3, 4-6. Such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God. Not that we're sufficient in ourselves to claim anything is coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Now we could spend a lot of time right there. It's just something to help illustrate this application point. Go back and look at that. Pray about that. That's fantastic. And then let it take you to Romans 8 because all roads lead to Romans 8. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus for the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For, listen, God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. How? By sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in Him. Oh, y'all, that ain't what it says. In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. Who walk, not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. This new covenant is much better than the old one. Rest in that. Rejoice in that. Better. Now baked. We're going to really dig in. Are you ready? Baked is referring to the condition of soil that's been cooked by the sun. Hardened, dried out. And we saw in our passage this week that we are not to harden our hearts like those in the rebellion. And then last week we saw this. But exhort one another every day as long as it's called today that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. So again, today if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. Last week, exhort one another so that you may not be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. There's a pretty good section here that I, uh, Alistair Begg shared in his message on this passage, and he got it from John Bunyan, the Puritan pastor who wrote um, Pilgrim's Progress. He gives us nine signs of a hardening heart. You're like, nine? Yeah, we're going to work through all of them. Why, Why are we doing this? Be careful. Exhort one another and pay attention. If you hear His voice, don't harden your hearts. If you start to see these things that I'm about to list from Bunyan through Beg in your life, be careful. And we'll talk about what to do when we get in. Number one, he says, is a life that is beginning to wane in its commitment and to grow cold in its interest. That there will be a forgetfulness of God and a forgetfulness of the fact that one day we're going to meet Him. So the life is just kind of like, eh, God, yeah. And it's not that I don't believe that, I just, I'm not thinking about it much. I'm just starting to forget it. That's the first sign. Second, there will be a gradual loss of private holiness, private prayer, the curbing of our lusts, and there will be a gradual loss of sorrow for our sins. 
Second sign of a hardened heart. Third, I'm gonna I'm gonna quote beg this whole point, okay? We will find that we begin to avoid the company of quote unquote lively Christians. And he says that's Bunyan's adjective, lively Christians. Begg says we won't be concerned about being around half-dead Christians because if we're concerned to be half-dead ourselves, then the company of the graveyard will be quite soothing to our expectations. But lively Christians we will avoid because they will always appear to be fanatical. And in Christian terms, a fanatic is always someone who loves Jesus more than I love Him. A fanatic's a person who lifts up their hands when they sing if I don't want to lift up my hands when I sing. A fanatic is someone who leaves a tract to the end of a meal if that's an embarrassment to me. A fanatic is someone who is always zealous for these things and always wants to talk about Jesus. End of quote. We won't want to be around those people if our heart is hardening. Fourthly, there will be a disinterest in public worship. Fifthly, there will be a picking of faults in others. Six, there will be association with the godless. The staying away from lively Christians and more and more associating with the godless. Seventhly, we will be involved in fleshly lusts in secret. Eighthly, quoting again, we will begin to play with sin openly. Bunyan says, and then Begg says this, suddenly we become more and more brazen as our hearts become harder and harder. We become like those of whom Jeremiah speaks in Jeremiah 8.12. Were they ashamed when they committed abomination? No, they were not at all ashamed. They did not know how to blush. And he says, they'll fall among the fallen. Beg says, they'll drive up in their cars and they'll look you full in the face. They'll introduce their adulterous relationships to you in the mall. End of quote. And last one, ninthly, being hardened, we will eventually reveal to all the sorry condition of our lives. And Beg concludes all that by saying this. Now, I don't know about you, loved ones, but if the rehearsing of that list doesn't cause you to examine your own heart, then you're probably in greater peril than you even realize. You're like, you're, you're trying to scare me. No, I'm just, I'm just telling you the truth. Listen, we all run the danger of our hearts hardening and losing interest in spiritual things and being attracted to the things of the world. And I mean, it's just Sunday morning. I mean, we'll go next week. There are things more important than being with God's people. Oh, that guy's a fanatic. He, he comes to church every time the doors are open. Heaven forbid. Those are signs of a hardened heart. So the question for the application is, so what should we do? if we see those signs in our lives. And listen, we should be evaluating ourselves, asking ourselves the question, man, do I see these? I, I see some of these things in my life. So what am I supposed to do? Be afraid that I'm going to hell? No. Respond to it. Two Old Testament prophets. That is not it. I got jumped or something. Maybe I just typed in the wrong passage. I don't know. It should be. No, I, I know what it is. I'm sorry. Two Old Testament prophets whom I didn't include in the slideshow. Hosea 10, 12. What should we do if we start to see our hearts hardening? Sow for yourselves righteousness, Hosea says. Reap steadfast love. Break up your fallow baked ground. For it is time to seek the Lord that He may come and rain righteousness upon you. 
start to break up that fallow ground. You start to see it's getting a little hard, getting a little dry. Do something about it. Repent. The whole life of the Christian is repentance. The whole time, the whole thing from beginning to end. Joel 2, 12 and 13 says this, Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God. Why? Because He's mad at you and He's going to zap you if you don't? Return to the Lord your God, for He is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and He relents over disaster. Listen, if you're starting to see sin become a habit and a pattern in your life, believer, weep. Fast. Rend your heart, not your garments. Do it on the inside, not the outside. Why? Because God wants to reign graciousness and love and grace and peace and not, not be angry at you. He's gracious and merciful. He's slow to anger. Listen, there is a time to weep over our hardness and our sin. And weeping lasts but for a night, but joy comes in the morning. God, I am so sorry for the sins that I committed. And it's not, please don't send me to hell. Listen, my sin becomes an opportunity to worship God. God, in my wretched state, prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Thank You so much that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Thank You for the forgiveness that was purchased for me by the body and the blood of Jesus. Thank You for the perfect rest that You offer those who are in Christ. And God, I have sinned and I am sorry for that and I rejoice in Your salvation. Don't let your heart get baked and hard. Rend it. Break up your fallow ground. And return to Jesus. Why? Because... He is gracious and merciful. That's the new covenant that we live in. We're not going to wander around in the desert for 40 years and our corpse fall out there somewhere. We're going to make it home. And we're going to be just like Jesus when we see Him. God's promised that. We saw that last week. And I want to reiterate, this is not to bring fear or to elicit some emotional response so you'll feel better about yourself. But I'm saying all this so that today, as long as it's called today, every day, we might bring our focus back to Jesus. We get so preoccupied with our job performance and we look at the final judgment as an evaluation and you got a C minus, I'll let you in. Or, you know what, D, C's and D's get degrees, thank God. No, 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 no. Prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. So take my heart, Lord. Take and seal it, which is what He's done. Seal it for thy courts above. You are in Christ, and nothing and nobody can change that. So sin grieves us and leads us to worship God for the forgiveness. So break up your baked, hard, fallow ground heart because we're part of a better covenant. Better baked. And finally, all of this is to bring our focus back to Jesus to believe in Him. Believe is the last point. And this 
is the crux of the matter. This is the very center. This is the most important thing. Because I promise you, you will not do anything as far as application if you don't believe in Jesus Christ. I'm like, well, I'll try harder to do better. I'd say good luck with that, but you're, you're doomed. I can be a pretty decent person and pretty decent people go to hell. Why? Because they didn't place their faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ. I am begging, believer, unbeliever this morning, I am begging you to believe in Jesus Christ. Believe in Him. Put your faith in Him. Trust in Him. Believe means to live by. Live by the fact that Jesus Christ is my righteousness. Live by the fact that He died to pay the penalty for my sins. Live by the fact that He inhabits me and I've been given His perfect righteousness as a free gift of the grace of God. And that alone is my comfort and my peace and my joy and my rest. Live by that truth. Unbelief is the sin that will send those not in Christ to hell. Hitler won't be in hell for what he did to the Jews. What he did to the Jews is a sign that he didn't believe Jesus. Now he'll pay the penalty for what he did to the Jews in the just wrath of God. But that was rooted in unbelief. Same is true of anybody. We always just like to use Hitler because he's the worst of the worst, right? Paul said he's the chief of sinners, by the way. This is literally a matter of eternal consequence. Do you believe in Jesus Christ? There is nothing in the universe that matters more than that question. Nothing. Now, come on, preacher. You're just trying to get me to give a donation. No, I don't. Really, that's the farthest thing from my mind. You're trying to guilt me into saying a prayer. Oh, absolutely not. No. I'm begging you as an ambassador for Christ, be reconciled to God. Well, how can I be reconciled to God? By believing in Jesus Christ, His Son, who was God in the flesh, lived a perfect life, died a sacrificial death on a cross to pay the penalty for your sins and my sins, was dead, buried, resurrected three days later, showed Himself alive to over 500 people at one time. Who knows how many? Over a period of 40 days, then went into heaven, ascended, and is seated at the right hand of God the Father, waiting for the day when He comes back and establishes His righteous rule on the earth for eternity. Believe in Him. And if you do believe, know that that was a gift from God. Bob read it this morning, Ephesians 2. Saved by grace through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. And we've said it a hundred times, the grace or the faith, and the answer is yes. And Jesus said to them, Go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved. 
but whoever does not believe will be condemned. And then this, last passage, Romans 10, 5-11. For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. But the righteousness based on faith says, Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved unless you mess up later. Four, with the heart one believes and is justified, a judicial proclamation of not guilty by God, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved once for all, the writer of Hebrews will say later. For the Scripture says, listen, everyone who believes in Him will not be put to shame. I beg you this morning, believe in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, You have done great things, perfect things. God, help us as individuals, as a corporate body, as Your people as the universal church. God, help us to see the beauty of the better new covenant. Help us to break up our baked, fallow ground hearts and repent and believe in Jesus. And again, God, if there's somebody who has not done that, who has not received that gift of faith and grace from you, today is the day of salvation. Have your way, Father, and help us to be faithful as we rest in your goodness and do the deeds that only you could do through us. Help us to know what has been done for us so that we can know what you can do through us. We ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand and receive a benediction? Now, may the God of peace Himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless At the coming of our Lord Jesus, He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. You're dismissed, but stay and eat with us if you can.